and God speaks. And we are in Psalm 19, as we mentioned earlier. Um, thank you so much for praying for us. Uh, just a little heads up, at the end of this sermon, Kim and I are walking out the door, not to be rude, but we are dropping and running, and uh, we need to get to the airport. So, we are in Psalm 19, though, and uh, Psalm 19 is rich, and it's so good, and it's worthy of, of our time and intention this morning. You know, we've said it many times, but we are hardwired, hardwired, meaning we are created for glory, not for glory, the glory of us, but for glory, sorry, you're a favorite, so it's going to come through, <laughs> so it is silence, but the favorites come through, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> Who's a favorite, right? Everybody starts texting. <laughs> so we are hardwired for glory, meaning God created us not to be, not for our glory, but for the glory of himself. We are hardwired for worship. Much of our lives, when you think about it, is built around exploring the glories of God's creation. Houses are built, right, where the glory shines brightly, right? The, the greater the glory, what? The more expensive the price tag, right? Vacations are taken where the glory shines brightest. Think about this. Somebody somewhere back in history hiked a mountain during the snow time, got to the mountain peak, and had this thought, you know, we could strap some wood planks to our feet and we could go down this mountain. Think about that. And then someone did so. Uh, someone stood at the bank of a river, a rushing river, and thought, you know what? We could take a raft. We get a raft and we could like try to dodge the boulders that are in the way here, and we could whitewater raft down this. Oceans and mountains and rivers and snow and the fall of uh, the colors of fall, sunsets and sunrises and rainbows and waterfalls, and, and, and. Billions of dollars are spent by believers and unbelievers alike exploring these glories, playing on these glories, photographing these glories, coming home and sharing the story with friends and families about these glories. And so when God determines to reveal himself, when he determines to make himself known, he does so on grand scale. And that's what Psalm 19 is all about. God makes himself known through his works, verses 1 through 6, and through his word, verses 7 through 14. It really is, as far as a psalm goes, it's, it's kind of that simple. 1 through 6, the work of his hands. Uh, 7 through 14, the words that we have from our God. He does both his work and his words. That, for what reason, to what end? It's, it's that we might know him. 
He's revealing himself. He's making himself known to us. And we would do well to enjoy both his work and his words. C.H. Spurgeon said, he is wisest who reads both the world book. He's, he's referencing Psalm 19. What he's saying is the world book, the creation of God, God's book that we live all right, he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. So consider this morning to what extent God has gone to make himself known to you, to me. If I could say insignificant you, insignificant me, the extent God has gone to reveal himself, the infinite to the finite, praise be to his name. Let's pray and dive in. Father, what can we say already? Just praise be to our God. You are glorious. We get to be your creatures living in your creation beholding all that's before us. May both the work of your hands and the words that we read on the page, Lord, may they both drive us to greater glorying in you. Reveal yourself to our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Point number one, his works proclaim. That's what the psalm is telling us. It proclaims a far-reaching and a never-ending, far-reaching, never-ending glory. That's verses one through six. All of creation reveals God's splendor, reveals God's glory. It reveals his worthiness, right? When we say he is worthy, worthy is your name, we sang, right? All of creation displays that worth that we sang about. We were created to behold the work of his hands and then not to, not to worship the creation. That's not what we're talking about. We're not glorying in the creation. The point of the glory of creation is that in all of its glory, right, it points away from itself to its creator. The, the point is not that we stand at the top of a mountain peak and go, wow, as if this is the end all, as, as if pr praise be to the mountain peak, but it points us, oh, there's a creator who created all that we see, all that is around us. We don't worship creation. We worship the creator of creation. And I love nature videos, documentaries. How many of you, you, you love the nature documentaries? All right, so I, I love those. Now, the problem with them, of course, is that, you know, you don't get too far in before they're trying to unpack for you a secular worldview, that these are, you know, that this fish that lives at the bottom of the ocean that nobody's ever photographed before, that that fish is random and a result of evolutionary process. Um, but, but aside from that, my worldview, our worldview tells us something different. As even I'm hearing that, I'm kind of shaking my head going, oh, seriously. Um, but at the same time, like the heart is responding. My God made that fish, <laughs> made that fish and billions like them that have never been photographed either. 
And you even think about that, that no, no person has seen this fish until this point in all of history, right? And now we're getting that, and, and, and they're basically saying glory in that fish, glory in that evolution, and we're saying glory be to the creator who made it all. And then I'm thinking, and so how many billions of those fishes that we've never photographed throughout all of history, and why are they there? What are they saying? Oh, they're proclaiming the glory of God. They proclaim, they, they speak our God is an awesome God. He is amazing in all of his glory. So verse 1 tells us, the heavens declare, it speaks the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. What, what, what is the heavens? What are the skies saying? What are they, what's the proclamation? It, the proclamation is, look at the expanse and glory in that there is a greater glory than just what this is. That, that, that God himself created all of this, all that we see. Glory in the one who made them. All the glories of the universe, the planets, the stars, the sun, the moon, the galaxies. The extent of which many of you work around that realm the extent of which all of our wisdom, all of our computer technologies, all of our power and ability today and the satellites and the spaceships and all our great, amazing, wonderful advancements. And even in all of that, we have not even begun to scratch the surface of the glories of the universe, the expanse of the skies. And that declares something. That proclaims something. And it's proclaiming our God is worthy. He is glorious. What's more, verse 2, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Day in and day out is what the psalmist is saying. When the sun goes down, the night's going to start speaking. Now the moon's going to go down, the sun's going to come up, and the sun's going to start speaking. I mean, it's just awesome, isn't it? And we, we think nothing of it. The sun came up this morning and probably none of us were going, wow, it came up today. Look at that sun displaying the glory of our God. It did. It did just that. We just missed it. When do the skies stop proclaiming? And stop declaring. The answer, according to the psalm, is it never stops. It's declaration. So we think, you know, when it, goes, when it gets dark and we fall asleep, there's, there's an ending of the proclamation. No, it keeps going, even while we sleep. And it's a poured out. I love that. Day to day, it pours out speech. It doesn't drip speech. It's not a drip of glory. It's just a pouring out of glory upon glory upon glory. It's no token glory. It's a right there in front of our face, glory, every day, every night, glory. And it speaks, verse 2, all the time. And then verse 3 and 4 gives us, so verse 2 is telling us how often, all the time. Verse, verse 3 and 4, to what extent does it how often, right? So it's going on all the time, but to what extent does it go on all the time? There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
Their measuring line goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. So, so the Psalms is, is poetry, all right? So what, what the psalmist is saying here, which is David, he's saying it, it, it goes, the measuring line, it goes to the ends of the earth. So how, how often, all the time, throughout all time, God's glory is on display. To, how far does that display go? Is that just in Titusville, in Florida, in America? No, it is across the globe, glory. I met a guy a few years back when we were on vacation. He said, quote, my church is nature. It's getting out on the water and paddling or rafting or walking the trails in the mountains. That's misplaced worship. We don't worship creation. We don't worship nature. It's a pointer, nature is. Creation is a pointer. We see, we behold, we go, wow, transferred. My God made that. My God created that and did so for our benefit and his glory. Misplaced worship. The glory is not the creation. The glory is the creator of the creation. The glory is not the mountains or the oceans or the waterfalls. It's the one who made them. So tomorrow, by this time tomorrow, Kim and I will be on the other side of the earth. And we will wake up to a sunrise. And probably because of preaching this this morning, we'll probably marvel at the sunrise. And here's what's amazing. Four hours later, you will too. Same sun. Viewed by both of us. Same rays of warmth experienced by both of us. Same moon, same stars. I assume we'll see a better starlit night than you will. Because we will not be near a Walmart parking lot with bright lights. <laughs> Nonetheless, even Walmart parking lot, that glory is still there. We just got to dim the lights. <laughs> Point is, to what extent does this glory go? It, it expands the whole earth. In creation, we're being told by the psalmist, it's preaching. It's declaring something about our God. Now, I keep saying, what is it declaring? It's declaring his glory. But a little bit more specifically, what does it proclaim about God? What we're describing, what the psalmist is describing. It proclaims the power of God. That's what we, we could read this and go, okay, how do, we, how do we respond in worship to God? Or maybe if we're in prayer, how do we pray the attributes of God from this psalm? Well, we might want to begin with, my God is all powerful. My God, well, we could go to, he is able. We could go to, God is infinite. He, we could go to, God is creator. Uh, certainly, he is, look at, look at his creativeness. We could go to the fact that he is sovereign, right? That he's ruling and reigning over all of these stars, that they are numbered. We could go to, well, how good is our God? Right? We could spend time contemplating and praying and thanking God about his goodness. Wow, look at where we live. How kind of the Lord to make himself known to you and I, if you are a believer in Christ. Praise be to God. How kind of the Lord. It, 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 it would move us to, 
Um, Our God is able. He has no limits. There are no boundaries with our God. It should move our hearts to go, God, I can hope in you. I can trust in you. My faith is stirred in you. Look before me, um, what's before me in all of your creation. But also then addresses our character, right? I am not God. I am humbled. I am laid low. It's humbling. It puts us in our right place when, when, when creation is making this proclamation, this declaration. I am not without limit. I am limited. I am created. I'm not the creator. I'm reliant. I'm dependent. And so pro- the, the creation is proclaiming that you and I were not God and he is. Praise be to him. Nine million plus visitors a year, probably not last year or this year, but typically, normal year, nine million plus years visit the Louvre in Paris. And out of those nine million visitors, most of them probably are making a trip to stand in front of this portrait of the Mona Lisa. And it's great. Uh, Kim and I were there one year, and we thought it was the day the Louvre was closed. We are Body clocks were all disoriented until we came around the corner and saw, wow, there's a lot of people over there at the Louvre. What day is it? <laughs> oh, it's open. Um, and it was the end of the day. So we, we have not seen the Mona Lisa, but there it is. You can Google it. <laughs> I think it's cool when people appreciate art. And so 9 million plus people a year going to appreciate the handiwork of man the handiwork of what man can do, but wow, on a whole nother level, the handiwork of God? Yeah, that's something. That's something. So Ralph Waldo Emerson was once asked what he would do if the stars came out only once every thousand years. What would you do if the stars came out once every thousand years and you happen to be alive on that year? He said, quote, no one would sleep that night, of course. We would be ecstatic, delirious, made rapturous by the glory of God. Instead, the stars come out every night and we watch television. To which I respond, wake up, Tim. Wake up. Do you see it? Slumbering soul, wake up. Am I captured by all the lesser things? Lesser glories. John Piper said, I believe nature is the prep school of our affections, readying them to delight in God. Here the the psalmist is responding to the glory that verses one through four show us. And he looks to the sky and look, verses five and six, he responds, which, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's risings is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. I love verse five um, there, just the joy, just the the, the imagery, the joy of the bridegroom. Um, It's the joy of the groom awaiting his bride. That joy, right, reflects a glory in his bride. It's my bride. One of the things I remember 
you know, your wedding day, right? It's quite the blur. That's why we take pictures. Because <laughs> like, it's such a, you know, it's such a hectic day. And you get to the end of it and you're like, what just happened? <laughs> like that just so much planning and went by so fast and now it's over. But one of the things I remember about my wedding day is my face hurt. My face hurt. Because muscles were being used all day long that weren't normally used. And it was this smile. Like it was just an all day long smile that at the end of the day, I was like, oh, that hurts. And what that expresses, right, is my face was responding to the joy of marrying this woman. And that expression, right, if I could say, reveals a glory that the groom has for his bride. There's a joy. And that's what the psalmist is saying. It's the bridegroom waiting for his bride. Joy. And so, you know, we are covering these psalms. This is summer psalms of joy. And so we find ourselves here in the joy, the delight that we have living in his creation. It's an overflow response of joy. Nobody's saying smile for the picture. You're already smiling. So how might we as a church join the psalmist in the praise, in the joyful praise. A couple quick thoughts. One, speak to your soul. Wake up, soul. Wake up, soul. Because I'm speaking to myself, my soul is dull to the things, the glories of God. Two, consider he created you for this reason, to respond to the glory of his work, his work of his hands. He created you to do it with joy, which brings us to the next. Address the complaining heart that goes on in all of us. Like we're just so much more inclined to wake up, not in the joy of, wow, I get to live in my father's creation today. The sun came up today. We're much more inclined to wake up and go, wow, it's hot again. It's hot again? Really? Is it going to be this hot? Oh, wow. Look at the rain. Rain, rain. And on and on it goes. Address the complaining heart. Speak to the soul. Soul, wake up and glory and thank God for the day. Reject the atheism of the soul. All right? So what I'm after there is just recognizing that there's a sense in us that, that, that denies that in all of our dullness, in all of our unawareness of the glories that surround us in God's creation, there's almost like this atheism in us. And just address that. Just be honest with that. I'm, I'm a servant of my God. You created me. You created me not to be dull to this or pretend like you didn't do all of this. Or not even pretend, but just in my ignorance, miss it. Oh, soul, wake up. Side note, as good and as glorious as this earth is, as amazing as this life is, consider the best is yet to come. There will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. And 
If you are a believer in Christ, we are headed there. I don't know if you hear that weird squeal behind me. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything you guys can do, but God bless you. As we always say, you poor guys never get called out until something goes wrong. <laughs> Thanks, you got it. <laughs> Someone pulled some plug. <laughs> so, so that's point one. His works proclaim a far-reaching and never-ending glory. Point two. His words speak unthinkable grace glory. That's verses 7 through 11. His words. First, the work of his hands. Second, his words. R.C. Sproul said, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity. And that power is focused on the scriptures. Wow. 66 books here. 40 plus authors written over 2,000 years. This spans 2,000 years written basically in two languages, Hebrew and Greek. Are you kidding me? 40 plus authors, and yet one author inspired them all. And because there's one author inspiring the 40 plus authors, there's only one subject to the entire book. And so you've got Genesis chapter one, God's creating, right? Genesis chapter two, God's creating. Genesis chapter 3, now we have male and female. I've got, I've got a page and a half getting us to the middle of Genesis chapter 3. You, you, what we could say is, once we get past the middle of Genesis chapter 3, everything else is about Jesus Christ. How will God redeem fallen man? The rest of the book, over 2,000 years and 40 plus authors and 66 books are all telling the same story. Wow. He's proclaiming, church. He is proclaiming. All of God's word is about Jesus and the salvation God offers through Jesus. So verses 1 through 6 is the work of his hands, glory. Verses 7 through 14 is the word glory. J.I. Packer writes, If I were the devil, please no comment, one of my first aims would be to stop folk from digging into the Bible, knowing that it is the word of God, teaching men to know and love and serve the God of the word. I should do all I could to surround it with the spiritual equivalent of pits, thorn hedges, and man traps to frighten people off. How? Well, I should try to distract all clergy from preaching and teaching the Bible and spread the feeling that to study this ancient book directly is a burdensome extra which modern Christians can forego without loss. I should broadcast doubts about the truth and relevance and good sense and straightforwardness of the Bible. And if any still insisted on reading it, 
I should lure them into assuming that the benefit of the practice lies in the noble and tranquil feelings evoked by it rather than in nothing that scripture actually says. At all costs, I should want to keep them from using their minds in a disciplined way to get the measure of its message. Well put. Church, we would do well to stop and to consider these verses about his word. He's making himself known to us. Consider God, infinite and almighty. To what length does he go to make himself known to sinful man? To what extent will he go? Well, he, he created and and he recorded. Right? He's preserved for us God's word. We can be indifferent to his, the work of his hands, right? And go, ah, nobody woke up this morning and said, wow, look at the sun. We can be indifferent to the words recorded for us that we have sitting in our laps this morning. Why the work of his hands? Why the words? Ah, because he wants to be known. He's revealing himself. Listen, this book is not some book that needs to be decoded. God is not, God's not trying to be a secret. He's making himself known. No, we do not go through the Bible and every seventh word, write that down and find out what the secret message is. No, he, he says it in black and white. It's clear to us. We, we just need to sit and, and, and be before our God and read it and spend time in it. The infinite, almighty God has gone to such lengths to give us his word to make things very clear for us that we might know him. Now look at the poetic repetition. Six times you have of the Lord. Let's, let's look, verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's poetry. It's beautiful language. That's the genre that we need to come to the Psalms, understanding and seeing and reading. And so God's not hiding. He's not a code to decipher. He is clear, clearly making himself known. Look at, look at uh, verse number 10. More to be desired, his words. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. It's, it's to say, again, poetry it's to say in a poetic way, this is to have value to our hearts, to our lives. We, we say here at Trinity, Trinity exists to treasure Christ. You might ask, how do we do that? Ah, thanks for asking. Dive into his word. This is how we treasure Christ. This is the treasure. He is the word. He is the bread of life. He is the word of life. In the beginning was the word. John 1. I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Verse 10 is saying, if you have a choice between the word of God and gold, take the word. Take the word. Now, you know what? Here's the thing. It's very easy for us in our hearts or in our lips to just go amen to that. We should all be going amen to that. But hear me. It's quite another thing to say, you know what? I'm going to do without that extra hour at work. That's the gold. What are you sacrificing? I'll take the extra hour at work. I'll take the gold. You're making a statement about the word. It's a value statement. Right? So simple to say, yes. Verse 10, more to be desired than are they than gold and even much fine gold. Amen. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. God help us. Help me. If you have a choice between the word and gold, take the word. It is Matthew 13, 44. The parable, probably maybe one of the shortest parables. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. And then he covered it up. Why is he covering it up? Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so he can buy that field. That's the kingdom of God. Once you see where the glory is, you say, oh, I'll sell all. I'll sacrifice to gain the greater glory. Because he's worth it. Hear me. I'm so grateful to pastor in a church that loves this book. It's a blessing to a pastor. But it's also easy to say amen. God's word versus gold, I'll take the word. It's easy to say it. And yet our hearts and our actions don't always match the words we say. My functional life says something different. It says what I need most is to desire and pursue the gold. The word, gold hasn't done any of this, but the word has saved our marriage. The word has saved our finances. Making more wouldn't have been the answer. We needed answers from the word. The word has saved friendships. The word has taught me to forgive and to seek forgiveness. The word has taught me us how to suffer. The word has taught me and us how to do church life. The word has taught me and us about Jesus, which has saved our lives. What is the worth of God's word? The value of the thing is revealed in what you're willing to give up to have it. We sacrifice for what we find worthy. We sacrifice money every time all of us make a purchase. Why? Because we're saying it's worth it. This purchase is worth it. One person buys the latest technology and makes a case for it, right? Like we're, we're talking to each other. We're saying because it's worth it. You know what this thing can do? Look at, look at what this thing can do. The next person says, heck no, I don't care what that does. I'd rather spend it on a dog or a cat or a car or food 
or a hobby. All of these are sacrifices we make based on what we value most. What's the point? The psalmist is placing value where value belongs. Is there anything more valuable than the eternal God who makes himself known to us? Is it worth your sacrifice of time? Is it worth the demand? People say, oh, it's hard. Is, is it worth it? Is it worth the demand on our minds to study, to dig in? Matthew 4, Jesus says it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus wants to think about our Bibles the same way we think about our food. Ah, oh, a day will not go by when Tim goes hungry. I think about food. So do you. That's why you chuckled, right? That, that you think about food. Because I just said food three times, you're thinking about food. People are like, stop talking about food. I'm hungry. God's word gives us new life and it helps us to grow and it strengthens our walk and it builds convictions. It's your very life. Do you need your soul revived? Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's interesting. Have you ever avoided God's word to get more life? Right? That's what we do. We think, oh, I just don't have time. I need, I need to get more life. And yet when we abandon the word, we actually lose our life and we begin to die spiritually. It's not an obvious death. No believer sets out to die. It's a subtle and slow death. You don't see it coming. It's carbon di dioxide type of death. On your physical deathbed, you will not be so concerned about masks or no masks, vaccines or no vaccines. It all gets exposed on the deathbed. I've never heard anybody um, asking for their stock report on the deathbed. I've heard unbelievers asking for Bible on the deathbed. It's wisdom, verses 7 and 8. It enlightens the eyes. Praise be to God. Have your eyes been enlightened? It's the fear of God or the awe of God, verse 9. It's the rules or the judgments of God. The word judges us. We are not judges of the word. <laughs> if we're doing that, stop it. We don't judge the word. The word judges us. We don't stand over the word. We stand under the word. And so number three, very quickly, and the worship team can join me. His servants respond in joy and prayer. It's verse five, joy, the, the groom joy. It's verse, verse eight, the precepts of the Lord rejoicing the heart. It's verses 12 through 14. Joy, I don't have time. Ah, well, let's just jump to verse 14. Rock and redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Said earlier, all of God's word is about Jesus. There's one subject. There it is. He's my rock and my redeemer. Yeah, David wasn't talking about Moses. <laughs> Let me just give you the cliff notes, right? He's talking in faith and I don't, we don't even know to what degree this is Jesus, my rock, my redeemer, the anchor of my soul, rock, 
the anchor of my soul, my redeemer, mean, meaning the one who has purchased our salvation, our redemption. Praise be to him, his name. God's word is not something to be endured. God's word is something to be enjoyed and treasured. Did you know that historically, all right, so uh, this will be for your next Christmas party trivia, trivia game. All right, here's trivia. Do you know when this psalm was typically preached historically? It was during Christmas time. Why? Because historically, they understood that Psalm 19 is about the incarnate word that Christ will come and take on flesh and the very word of God. I referenced before John 1, the word took on flesh and lived among us. He is the perfect expression of the revelation of God. Think about the work of his hands, right? His works is what saved us. Right? It's his works is the reason why we're not working for our salvation today. Praise be to God. The work of Jesus Christ accomplished, secured your salvation in him. He's your rock. He's your redeemer. But the words, he is the word of life. He is God incarnate. So how do we respond to the good news of this glory? How do we joyfully enjoy it? Read it memorize it, study it, sing it, submit yourself to it. And Trinity Community Church, glory in his works and in his words. Let's stand together. You're gonna remain and sing. I have gone a little long. We are going to run to the airport and Josiah will be leading you, closing down the service and having communion together. God bless you. We'll see you again soon. Pray for us.